The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. Open with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 25 is where we'll be at uh, this morning. Matthew chapter 25. When, when our children were young, they would often want to buy mom and dad a Christmas present. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, some, something to put under the tree. I'm not sure how you handled that when you had young kids or if you still have young kids. Uh, but, you know, they were, they were never expensive presents, a dollar or two here, five dollars, you know, an extravagant gift would have been a $10 gift or something, you know, something very simple like that. But, you know, most five and six-year-olds don't have a steady job, right? And so, so they don't have any money of their own to buy gifts. And so what we would do is we would give them a little bit of money, you know, 10 bucks or 20 bucks, whatever, and give them some money to buy gifts for us. But when we gave them the money, we would tell them that it had to be used for what it was intended to be used for. And so, in other words, we didn't want to give them 20 bucks and then them buy you know, each of us a dollar gift and pocket the remaining $15 for themselves. That, that was defeating the purpose of why we were giving the money, right? And our children were really good about that, and they used the money for what it was intended. It was always a very sweet thing to see what they thought uh, mom and dad or um, brother or sister needed for Christmas. Um, and as I was thinking about that with, ref- with respect to today's sermon, you know, I thought how much that reminds me of what our Heavenly Father does for us. Our, heaven, our Heavenly Father, He gives us gifts that we could never afford. Gifts that we can't acquire on our own. We're like that helpless five-year-old. And our Heavenly Father gives us a gift. But He gives us those gifts... He gives us those things so that we might use them for the sake of His kingdom. And so without any further ado, I want us to look today at a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. If you're there, say amen. I'm going to read verses 14 through 30. Uh, This is called the parable of the talents. Follow along with me, please. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more talents. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. 
His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. But here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I, do not, where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. At my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we know that your word, Father, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray now, Lord Jesus, that you would use your word now to mold us, to sharpen us, to shape us more and more into the image of Christ. And Lord, help us as we examine your word to understand it properly to apply it into our lives that we might live in a way that's pleasing to you we pray in jesus name amen so if you're a note taker a very simple idea for our sermon today is that we're expected to use our gifts for kingdom enterprise so kingdom work we're expected to use our gifts those things that god has given us we're expected to use those things now to advance his kingdom in this world Now, as I've already said, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, this is a parable. Um, And so before we get too far along, what's a parable? I've talked to you about this before, but it's always a good idea to be reminded. Without, Without getting too technical, for Jesus, a parable is a fictional story where he uses common illustrations to make a theological point. That's how Jesus is using parables. And he was the master at telling parables. I've shared this with you before as well. One third, over, over one-third of all the words we have in the New Testament recorded from Jesus' mouth are in the form of parables. So he told parables a lot. But one of the dangers that we make, or one of the dangers we can make when we come to read a parable is that we can press the details of a parable too hard trying to make application into our lives. And so here's what, here's what I mean. You know, we read this parable that we're looking at here today and we say, we get caught up on that. What is that journey about? I wonder what that man was doing while he was on that journey. And we begin speculating about these types of things. And, and while that journey is important, and I'll explain what that journey is in just a moment, it's, it's not really the point of the parable. It's not the main point of the parable. And so we need to make sure that we remember that this is it's a fictional story, but it's making a theological point. And I want to make four Four points from our message today, or from this passage today. 
Point number one is God gives the resources. And we see this in the first two verses, in verses 14 and 15. Jesus, he begins by saying, for, for it will be like. Now, if you're a curious reader, or if you're an inquisitive reader, right away you might start by asking yourself, what will be like? It will be like? What, what is that it about? If, if it's going to be like something, I want to know what that it is. And not, not only do I want to know what it is, I frankly, I need to know what that it is if I'm, if I'm ever going to have a proper understanding of this parable. It's, let, let, me, let me illustrate what I mean. If, have you ever found yourself coming into the middle of a conversation? So a conversation's already started and, and you get there or maybe you join your family for family movie night and you're, the movie, you're 10 minutes into a movie you've never seen before and there's, there's a dialogue going on. There's something happening in the conversation and you're, you're a bit confused Maybe they keep using the pronoun he. He did this and he did that and, and whatever. And you're kind of scratching your head. What, what's going on here? You're, you're not following because you weren't privy to what came before. And then someone looks at you and they, they see that kind of like, what, what in the world are you talking about? That look on your face. They, they, they notice that you're not following the discussion. And then they say, oh, oh we're, we're talking about Bill. And, and Bill just, he, he, he decided to take a new job last week. And you're like, ah, the, the, aha. The light bulb goes off, and, and now the whole conversation begins to make sense. Well, that's what's happening here when Jesus says, well, it will be like. It'll be like this man going, well, what is the it? Well, if you're reading from what are called red-letter Bibles, so this is a red-letter Bible, not to say that the red letters are more important than the black letters, okay, friends, don't ever fall into that trap. But if you read the red-letter Bible where it says the words of Jesus are in red, You'll, you'll notice that all of chapter, I mean, every word in chapter 25 is all read. And you'll notice that almost all of the words in chapters 23 and 24, they're, they're all read. So Jesus is, he's doing a lot of speaking here. But one of the things that the red letter kind of points to is, is ah, well, here's, a, here's some black, Jesus isn't doing this speaking here. And we see at the beginning of chapter 24, we might think, well, that's a, off, that's a, a far way removed from the middle of chapter 25, but not, not so. Right in the middle of chapter, the beginning of chapter 25, or excuse me, 24, Jesus is telling his disciples about the future destruction of the temple, about the end of the age. And they're saying, well, when, when are these things going to happen? They're, they're asking him the question. Look with me, follow with me, chapter 24, verse 3. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of of the end of the age okay do you hear their question their their question when is the end of the age going to happen that's the question that jesus begins to answer in verse 4 of chapter 24 and he continues answering that question for the rest of chapter 24 and for all of chapter 25 so when we get to that phrase in verse 14 when he says for it will be like what is that it about? It is the end of the age. Jesus is saying, well, the end of the age, this is what it's going to look like at the end of the age, before I come again. So between my first coming and my second coming, this is what it's going to be like. That's the journey, by the way, that he's on. This man, he's on a journey. He came and he went on a journey, a very long journey. It's the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so Jesus is talking about how do we prepare ourselves 
for the end of this age. And he tells us in verses 14 and 15 that, that, he, that the Master, and by the way, Jesus here, He's the Master, okay? He's the one who's represented as the Master in this parable. That the Master does something intentional. In verses 14 and 15, He calls His servants to Himself, and Jesus says He entrusts His property to them. Well, if Jesus is the Master, well then, who are these servants? Well, we're the servants. We, we are. We are His servants. And so He gives to His servants. You notice He gives to one, He gives ten talents. To another, two talents. To a third servant, He gives one talent. And now this is really important to understand this, beloved. We need to be careful that we don't just read over this. There are, there are a number of things to be considered in His giving these gifts. First, when He, when he says talent... He's not talking about things like, well, that guy can really sing, or she can really dance, or man, he can play, play ball. That, that's not the talent that he's talking about. Rather, a talent is a large sum of money. To put it in perspective, your average day laborer, in Jesus' day, your average day laborer would have to work 19 years to earn one talent. 19 years, nearly two decades. So the five talents that he gives to the first, that's, that's nearly a century's worth of work. It's a large sum of money. And with that in mind, I want you to notice then the generosity of the Master. The Master again representing Jesus. When Jesus gives from what belongs to Him, He doesn't give sparingly. He doesn't give begrudgingly. He gives generously. He gives abundantly. Those things that we have from God are not to be trifled. Those, that's, wow, how generous He is. Imagine, if you will, your shock if you open up your banking app tomorrow morning and you notice that in your account you have a hundred years worth of your current salary in your account. Now, some of you might already be there, okay? And God bless you if you're already there. But for the rest of us, imagine if you wake up tomorrow and there's a hundred years of your current salary in your account. Or for that matter, just even if there's 20 years, right? The one talent. You would be like, what? I can't believe that just happened. That would be pretty special, wouldn't it? Well, Jesus, that's, that's what He gives. He gives generously. Third thing I want us to notice from this is that even though the talent is a form of money, I want to be careful not to press that detail too hard here in this parable. And so rather than thinking of all of God's gifts to us in strictly monetary terms, we need to recognize that God gives us a variety of gifts. Sometimes those gifts do represent a financial reality in our lives. Whereas other times the gifts, the things that God gives to us, they, they might represent spiritual gifts. The, the riches that He gives to us as His children. Finally, I want us to notice here in, in His giving to us, this is, if you will, the, the obvious elephant in the text, is that God gives different gifts to different children. Okay? In this parable, one of them gets, gets five talents. Another two talents... The, the third one, he only gets one down. I say only one down. Remember, even that smallest one, that's a huge gift. But he gives more to some than he gives to others. But here's what's important. Even though he might give larger gifts to some, and we might say, man, I wish I had the gifts that that person had. Even though he might give larger gifts to some, he nevertheless is generous to all of his children. He's generous to all of us. 
And so, beloved, if you're a Christian today, God has given you an exceedingly large gift. The only question that remains is, how are we using that gift? Which brings us to point number two. In point number two, we, we need to recognize that we work for Him. Him meaning Jesus. That's, that's who we work for in the parable. Uh, they're working for the Master. But we work for Him. And so after giving His servants these extraordinarily generous gifts, the Master, He goes away on His journey. Now, why? Why, do, why does He give them these gifts? Why, why does Jesus give us gifts? Is it so that we can say, Woohoo! Look at me! Look at all the things I can do! Look at all the things I have. That's, I don't think that's at all why he gives us gifts. Look back with me there in verse 14. I think verse 14 answers the question about why he gives us gifts. In the parable, this master, he calls his servants to himself. Some of your translations might even say there, he calls his slaves unto himself. He calls his servants to himself. So when we place our faith in Jesus... We do so by surrendering our lives to Him as our Lord. That means that we're no longer in charge of our lives. We're, we're not the ones in charge. We belong to Him. We've been bought with a price. We, we were sinners because our sin separated us from God. We were alienated from God. We were enemies of God. We were under the wrath of God. Do you, do you get the picture here? Our relationship was, with God was in tatters. Scratch that. It, our, our relationship wasn't in tatters. It was beyond tatters. Our relationship with God was one of hostility. But, and that's one of the greatest words you'll ever find in the Bible, but, but God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. You see, we have, we, it's not something we deserve. It's not something we've earned. We have no right to demand that type of rescue. But the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on flesh and became a man. A man named Jesus. And He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And at the end of that earthly life, He was nailed to a cross so that He could pay a debt that we owe. He deserved to die. Or he, excuse me, He didn't deserve to die. We did. He died in our place so that we might have life. And so what does that mean? That means we're His servants. We work for Him. Right? And, and, and if you think about it, really, it's really a rather small price to pay, isn't it? He gave His life for us. It's a small thing to say that we're going to serve Him well, that we are His servants. And so back to the parable here. Right away, the one who's been given five talents, he begins using those talents wisely. And he makes five more talents. Bada bing, bada boom. He has, he's got ten talents now, right? The one who's been given two talents, he begins to do the same. He uses those talents wisely. He makes two more talents. He's got four talents. But the third servant, the one who'd been given only, and again, remember, the one talent is a huge gift, but he's only, only been given one talent. Jesus tells us that that servant digs a hole in the ground and he hides the, muster, the master's money in that hole. So how is the master going to react to that servant? Well, that's point number three. So we will see, we will give an account to him. We'll give an account 
to Jesus, to our Master. Verse 19, so this is verses 19 through 30 through the end of the parable. Verse 19 tells us, again, it's been a long time, so the Master's been, been away for a long time. He's returned now to settle accounts with his servants. In other words, it's been, it's been understood from the outset that the servants were supposed to be using those talents to serve their master, for the benefit of the master. He, he, Jesus has gone away, if you will. We know that He is coming back. We don't know when He's coming back, but we know that He is coming back. And so when Jesus returns, He is going to settle accounts with us. And in verse 20, the master first calls to himself the one who'd been given five talents. Servant reports, you know, hey, look what I've done with the five talents. I've got five more. The master says to him in verse 21, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Likewise, in verses 22 and 23, the same thing happens to the servant who was given two talents, who had earned two more talents. Word for word, the master gives him the same speech. But then we get to verse 24. The servant who had only been given one talent, he comes forward and he says this to his master. Notice these words. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Then notice how the Master replies, beginning in verse 26. Remember that the Master, he's Jesus, okay? He says, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. What are we to make of that response? I mean, we're, we're all good, right, with, with how he responded to the first two servants. You know, enter, you've done, good job. Enter into the joy of your master. We're like, you know, that's cool. That, that's how I hope I'm going to be received. That, that's what I want. But talk about a change in tune, right? I mean, wow, what, what a change in tune that the first words out of his mouth are, you wicked and slothful servant. This is a verbal beatdown, what's happening right here. And, and again, this is Jesus Himself telling the parable about how He Himself would respond. This kind of, it kind of goes against the, the spirit of our age, doesn't it? I, I hear people, I don't know if you hear this, but I hear this from people all the time. They'll say things like, well, the, you know, the Jesus that I know, He wouldn't say something like that. He wouldn't say something so harsh to something. Not, not the Jesus that I worship. Well, Hello! This is the Jesus of Scripture right here. I'm not making this up. I'm reading straight from the Bible. This is what He's saying. I'm not putting words in His mouth. It's a parable that He tells about Himself. So why is He being so harsh 
with his third servant. Here's why. Despite the fact that this third servant calls him master, this third servant's actions show that he's really only paying lip service to the master. In other words, the master is not really his master. He's saying master, but his heart is not saying master. The servant fears the master because he believes the master to be harsh. You might say, well, he was kind of harsh with him, wasn't he? Well, ironically, the master is harsh only with those who don't truly belong to him. Right? Was the master harsh with the first two? Not at all. There's no harshness in that tone. But the third servant was a wicked and unbelieving servant. And again, let's not press the details too far. Jesus isn't telling us here in this parable that He requires all of His children to double, if you will, the resources. You know, that if I had five, I need to have five more. That, that's not what He's saying. Remember, He even says to the wicked servant, you could have at least put my money away at, in a bank and I would have at least gotten my money plus interest. So I'm not, I'm not, He said, I'm not asking you to double everything. I'm just asking you to be wise how you steward the things that I give you. This third servant was wicked and slothful. He buried the money. He didn't trust the master. He was wicked. He was lazy. He didn't even put forth an effort to use the gifts in a productive manner. David Turner, um, in his commentary on this passage, he wrote just three sentences I want to quote from you. There's three insightful sentences on this passage. He says, and I quote, From the first two slaves, one deduces that trustworthiness leads to an even greater blessing. But the third servant demonstrates a lack of trustworthiness that leads to a removal of the original blessing. There is no excuse for inactivity since it arises out of fear and sloth, neither of which is compatible with discipleship. Followers of Jesus have been equipped to serve Him and are obligated to use their gifts to extend God's reign. Beloved, this parable shows us without any doubt that we are obligated. It's not, it's not a good idea. We are obligated to use the good gifts that God has given us to extend His reign. You know, it's not uncommon to come across somebody who claims to be a Christian because of some decision that they made years ago, often in childhood. And, and to be clear, listen, we don't have the ability to know with 100% certainty the status of somebody's heart. We, we cannot know that. We cannot know, you cannot know even with certainty whether I'm, your, I'm your, that whether I'm a Christian with 100% certainty. But we can. And according to the Scriptures, I would argue that we must examine the fruit of a person's life. And if our lives aren't producing any type of spiritual fruit, or if there's not even a desire in our lives to produce spiritual fruit, then we shouldn't be surprised that on the last day, Jesus casts us out into eternal judgment. Because that's what's happening to the third servant, right? The place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's not, a, if you will, a lower tier of heaven. That's a place of judgment where this person is going. And so listen to me, friends. 
We are not saved by the spiritual fruit we bear. Nor are we condemned because I didn't bear as much fruit as this other person bears fruit. But spiritual fruit is indicative. It is a sign of that we genuinely have a true relationship with Jesus. And that leads me to my final point that I want to make. And just looking at the parable in an overall, so will we be found faithful? Will we be found faithful? So, beloved friends, one day we will all stand and give an account of our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us will do that. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, we won't turn there, but you can look there later. It's in chapter 7. Uh, somebody comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, Lord, didn't, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. And then they're cast into judgment where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, if you die without genuinely trust or turning from your sin and turning to Jesus, that will be your fate. As sure as I'm standing here today, if you die without trusting in Jesus, that will be your fate. But you have a choice. As long as there is air in your lungs, you have a choice. You can turn from your sin today and you can turn right now to trust in Jesus. And if you want to do that, I beg you, I implore you to talk to me after the service. If you're listening online, to send me an email, to call me, to whatever. Get in touch with me. I would love to talk to you about that. Now, for my remaining comments, I'm assume I'm talking to Christians. People who, are, who have already genuinely trusted in Jesus. And the question for us is still, will we be found faithful? Will we use the gifts that God has given us to bring glory to His name? Now, how might that happen? Well, since this is a parable, since the parable rather uses the picture of money, let's, let's start right there. Are we using our finances to bring glory to God? Our church covenant, which is a promise we make to one another, it says this in our church covenant. We quote, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. Unquote. That's our church covenant. Promise we make to one another. So are, are we giving regularly, proportionally, joyfully to the Lord's work? What about that regularly word? As often as you get paid, do you, do you give of your financial resources to the Lord's work as you get paid? The Scriptures teach us that principle, by the way, of regular, faithful giving. Paul teaches that explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Regular, faithful. He says, when they gathered on the first day of the week, regular, faithful giving. I'm always amazed at what happens in December in our church budget. We seem to receive more gifts in December uh, than we do in other months. Now, in theory, in theory, that could be a good thing, a godly thing could be happening. It could be that some individual or some families are looking and saying, wow, we're a little bit behind, and I know we've been giving, we've been giving all year long, but we're behind as a church, and so let's, let's give some, you know, let's give sacrificially during the month of December so we can help the church make budget. I mean, that could be happening. I don't think that is what's happening. 
Now, for the record, you guys know that I've said this to you before, and time and time again, it's still my policy. I don't know what any individual giving records of this church are, other than the Sandifer family. That, that's, I know what, what I give, but other than that, I don't know. I have no clue what you give to this church. Um, but when we have a big uh, December, uh, or when we have an extraordinary large gift, our financial secretary will usually say to me, so like, yeah, we had a, we had a large individual or family gave a large gift, um, what have you. Um, and she'll she'll say to me sometimes. She says, "Yeah, they, 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 what what that family does is is they're they're giving all of their giving for the year. They're giving it in one check." Now, listen, if if you're one of those families, and again, I have no idea if you are. I, I know there are some families that do that, but if you're that family, listen to me. I'm grateful. I'm super grateful for your large gifts. But let me encourage you as your pastor. And so unless you unless like you get paid one large paycheck at the end of the year, if that's if, I mean, if that's how you're getting paid, then, man, that kind of stinks to have have a job where you only get one one check a year. Let me encourage you to use the pattern that we see in Scripture and to give regularly, not just one time a year or twice a year, or a large gift, but to give regularly to the Lord's work. I, I think you'll be blessed for it when, when you do that. That, that's the pattern we see in Scripture. Or, or do we give proportionally to the Lord's work? Now that, that should go without saying, right? If the more we make, the more we should give. And I, w- I would argue that even percentage-wise, there ought to be a difference. So if you and your family make $50,000 a year and you give 10% of that to the Lord, Lord's work, that's, that's genuinely sacrificial giving, right? That's, that, I mean, that's, that's hard to live in this area on that income and then plus giving a portion of it to the Lord's work. But if, on the other hand, you and your family you make 750k a year, and you give 10% of the Lord's work, while well, while you're giving in absolute dollars far far more than that other family is giving, 10% of 750k is, is, is a lot of money. But that's I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that's sacrificial giving per se. Now there there may be other extenuating circumstances in your life where that makes it sacrificial. I don't know. But do you, you follow what I'm saying? That proportionally speaking that as the Lord, to him much is given, much is required. That's what the scriptures teach us. And do we give joyfully? You know, or, or do we give because we feel obligated to give? Do, do we give because we're afraid, like we're going to turn out like this third servant and, and God is going to judge us if we don't give? Well, in one sense, we ought to feel obligated to give. There, there, there is a healthy, if you will, obligation to give. And the Lord very well may judge us if we don't give as we should. But I believe this very strongly. None of those, neither of those things should animate our giving. So I don't get excited about giving because I feel obligated to give. I get excited about giving because I get to be involved in the Lord's work. I mean, where else can you invest in something that's going to pay dividends for eternity. So that's why I get it. So I want to be a joyful giver. So are we being good stewards of the treasure that God has given to us? Here's another area where we might be found faithful. How about time? So time is the great equalizer, isn't it? So even, even in this room, we, are, we have represented in this room various levels of income. We have some people in this room that make far more than other people make. 
And that's fine. The Bible, listen, the Bible is not anti-wealth. I know some people out there, you know, that the Bible is not anti-wealth. There are a lot of people, wealthy people in the Bible, who use their finances to, to glorify God. So the Bible is not anti-wealth. Uh, but how do we use our time? Again, the great equal, we all have, doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, you still have 24 hours in the day just like I do. And so are we being a good steward of our time? Do we set aside our time to read the Bible? Do we set aside time to pray? Do, do we make it a priority in our lives? Listen, I want to I set aside time during the week where I make sure I have an opportunity to interact with people who are lost or to, help to, to come alongside a church member and help disciple that church member. Do we set aside time for that? And so we steward our time. We steward our treasure. But we also steward our talents, don't we? And here by talents, I don't mean in the biblical sense, like a large sum of money. I do mean more in the everyday English sense of the word. That the Lord has given to us various gifts and talents. And are, are we using those things that God has given us? Do we use those to bring glory to His name for, for kingdom growth? And so if you have a talent, for example, to teach, are you using your talent to teach others spiritual and biblical lessons? If you have an intalent, a, a talent to encourage other people, you might think, well, that's not very much. Well, that's not really much of a talent. Don't take that lightly. Don't take that ability lightly. Trust me, some people seem to have more of the ability to discourage rather than to encourage. And so if you have the ability to encourage, praise God for that. Are you using that to encourage others in the body of Christ? And we could go on and on and on, right, with different talents and abilities. You may not have as much treasure as somebody else, but are you using what treasure you have to bring glory to God? And we all, we, we, we all have the 24 hours in the day, and you might think, well, I'm a slow reader. It takes me longer to read a chapter of the Bible than it takes you. Well, that, that's fine. But are you using the 24 hours that God has given you? Are you using those to bring glory to God? And the gifts that God has given you? Are you using those talents for kingdom purposes are you using them to bring glory to the lord are you giving your everything to the one who's given you everything i want to close today by telling you a true story um, i don't know about you I, I love movies that are based on true stories I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for movies that are based on true stories i like like watching them um, this story is true that i'm about to tell you it's not one of these uh, preacher stories that get made up. Um, I, I know it's true because this is it's my story. It's what happened to me. In 1979, my father, who was in the Air Force, received a new assignment. In, in actuality, it wasn't really a new assignment. We were we were moving back to a place we had lived before because in 1975, we had we had just left Eglin Air Force Base in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Um, the Lord had saved me that year in 1975, and uh, and Uncle Sam gave my dad orders to move to Germany. So we moved to Germany from 75 to 79. But then my dad was reassi reassigned right back to Eglin Air Force Base, and we moved back there. Um, at this time, I was entering the eighth grade, and I was attending Lewis Junior High School. Now, for those of you who aren't old enough to remember junior high there is, is actually a little different than middle school. Middle school is usually like grade six, seven, and eight. Junior high, uh, when, you know, the stone age when I went to school was seven, um, eight, and nine. Um, so there was three years of junior high and then three years of high school. 
Any of you junior high people in here? Yeah, I've got a few of you who are junior high people, okay. Um, thank you for showing your age along with me. I appreciate you doing that. Uh, I didn't know it when I first got to the school. I didn't know anything about the school. About I, I'd always played sports, um, but I didn't know anything about it, so I didn't try out for any of the sports teams. Uh, but I learned after being there a year that, um, that their football team was quite good. And so I, des- I decided to try out for the football team. And, and, and I mean, that team, it was a beast of a team. Now you think junior high, really? Let me, let me give you an idea. I was just this week, I was, I was thinking about this illustration. I Googled the uh, sports team. And in 2015, 40 some odd years after the fact, they're still writing about this junior high school football team. Okay, now, I don't know if, it, if you're still writing there, and they were, they were talking the accolades about this junior high football program, about how back in the 70s, they, they had gone something like uh, 34 straight games without losing, and gone four straight years where they only lost one. It was, I mean, they're, they're writing the accolades of this football team. I mean, and, and when they won, it wasn't like nail biters. They, they, they destroyed other teams. Well, you, you can look at me now, okay? I was a couple inches shorter then, but um, you, can, you can look at me now and you can understand I've never really had a football body, right? I, I was in the ninth grade. The football padding that I had to wear, that I was required to wear, probably weighed as much as I did uh, when I was in the ninth grade. Um, and I didn't have a speck of athletic talent. I mean, not, not a spec. So unlike our associate pastor, uh, Brian, he had to step out of the room with, see, our associate pastor like actually played collegiate sports. Okay. So got some athletics. Yeah. Me, I, I watched collegiate sports. I, you know, I never, never played uh, collegiate sports, but anyways, back to my story here. Coach Wilson was the head coach and he didn't, he didn't play around. He didn't coddle his players. If you weren't any good, he just, he would tell you right to your face, you're not any good. And so as the season was getting ready to start after a few weeks of practicing in the Florida heat at the end of the summer, we were preparing for our opening season jamboree. And Coach gathered all the players into the uh, locker room the day before the jamboree, and he began listing, uh, reading off of a list of about 30 or so names. My name was on that list. And then he said something, I promise, this was happening to me right at the beginning of my ninth grade year, and I promise you I haven't forgotten it since. I will never forget what he said. He said, if your name was on that list, don't even think about coming up and asking me to play in tomorrow's jamboree. If your name was on that list, you are not going to play. All right, we just, it's just somebody else was adding something to the sermon. So, um, now, I don't know what I was expecting. I was... A ninth grader, I, I couldn't bench press even my own weight. Again, I hardly had a speck of athletic talent, but I took that embarrassment. It was an embarrassment. I, I was embarrassed. I, I sank down, um, and I took that as a challenge. And I determined then and there that I wasn't going to hear my name read every week for the rest of the season about you're not playing. Our first regular season game was a week later. I was sitting on the bench along with all of the other boys whose names had been read aloud the previous week. And about halfway through the first half, coach comes up to me and, you know, grabs me by the face mask. They don't do a whole lot of that anymore, but back in the day, they grab you by the face mask, and he brings the defensive coach, and he says, and he said, and again, I'll, I'll never forget this, he says, I don't care if it's only for one play, 
but this boy plays tonight. Now, immediately, immediately I'm the hero of all the bench sitters, right? That I'm, that I'm not actually going to get to play. And, and don't get all teary-eyed. This isn't Rudy. I promise it doesn't end like Rudy. This is not, that's not going to happen, okay? I, you know, the story doesn't end with the once upon a time bench sitter. I'm the, all of a sudden the starting guy and we score a touchdown to win the championship. No, no, no. I sat the bench the whole year. I never started a game, but the coach made a point to put me in every game, except one. I, I missed one game. Every, you're going to play. I was, I was a linebacker, a middle linebacker. I, I loved that position. I still love that. I still like when I watch football, I love watching the middle linebacker position. I love that. You know, when a runner comes up through the middle, just a pow, a, big, a good hit. I love that. And it, you know, that runner may ultimately run me over, but I wasn't going to lay down for him. I mean, I was going to put a hit on him. Well, at the end of that season, uh, during the awards banquet, a lot of young football players, um, very talented players, they were recognized for their accomplishment, you know, most valuable player to the team, best defensive, best offensive, etc. But toward the end of that banquet, the last award given, the coach got up to speak, and he told the crowd, he says, I've come up with a new award this year. He called it the Falcon Award. That's what we were, the Lewis Junior High Falcons. Um, the Falcon Award was for outstanding dedication and hustle. Bill Bean, like the bean, that's, and that's about how tall, about how his size, he was smaller than me. His name had also, by the way, been read aloud um, at the Jamboree, the day before the Jamboree. Bill Bean and I became the first recipients of that Falcon Award. Now, I share that story not because I'm nostalgic for my junior high school days. I promise you I'm not nostalgic for those days at all. Um, rather, I share that story to say this. We've, we've all been given different abilities, different talents, if you will. Each of us, though, has been called to be a good steward of those talents. Whatever that talent might be, we're not called to compare ourselves with the person next to us. We're called to steward the talent that God has given us in a way that brings him glory. I was never going to be a world-class football player, and I was okay with that. For that, for that matter, I, I was never even going to be a starting high school football player. Just I didn't, I didn't have that ability. But whatever athletic talent the Lord did give me, I knew I wanted to use that to the best of my ability. And so let me close by asking this Simple question. How are you doing with stewarding the talents that God has given to you? Whatever talents those are, are you using those for his glory? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day and for your grace. I thank you, Father, that you love us and you care for us. You, again, you've adopted us in your family. And so, Father, I pray now that you would use your word to mold us and to, to prick our conscience, to let us know that we, we have a responsibility, Father, to use whatever talents it is that you have given us, to use them to your honor and glory. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. 
but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.